Jeremiah 17, reading at verse 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. For you are my praise. Look, they keep saying to me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. But as for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd after you, nor have I longed for the woeful day. You yourself know the utterances of my lips was in that the utterances of my lips was in your presence. Do not be a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let those who persecute me be put to shame. But as for me, let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring on them a day of disaster and crush them with a twofold destruction. Father, we know that you are a God of love, but we know at the same time you're a God of justice. And Father, we need to have that in balance and to realize that the scripture teaches us to fear the Lord our God. And we know, Lord, that uh, sometimes we have moved beyond that and uh, we become too familiar with you in, a, in our own minds, not realizing who you really are. Father, I pray that our prayers will go up to you in faith that the mighty God will act that you will heal us, you will save us, you will do the great work that uh, we have committed into your hands. And yet at the same time, Lord, you will work your justice uh, here uh, in this world. Father, you are the victor. In Jesus, we have victory. And so we trust you for these great works and for what you will do this day in us through your word as we look at it this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The last nine chapters of the book of 1 Samuel focus on a relationship between Saul, the anointed king of Israel, and David, his anointed successor. In chapters 23 and 24, we, we studied those already, we saw that Saul was pursuing David through the landscape until Saul himself was humiliated by the encounter which occurred at En Gedi. In chapters 26 and 27, which will begin chapter 26 today after a bit, the next account of Saul's renewed pursuit of David. In between, and where we were the last two Sundays and where we'll finish up today, we have this, this chapter 25, which is like a little scenario in the midst of the bigger picture here of David dealing with two individuals who are extremes in, in the character they exhibit. Nabal the fool and Abigail the wise woman. Nabal was a man with 3,000 animals, which at that time was great wealth, particularly in the little tiny village of Carmel where he lived, probably for the better part of a year. While David was hiding in the wilderness, his men also, while they were there, provided a shield, a wall of protection around Nabal's herds and possibly the herds of other animal owners at that particular time. So when it came shearing time, now we don't live in a, in a shepherd environment or a sheep raising environment. If we lived in uh, New Zealand, for example, or Australia, we'd have a better idea about this probably. But when it comes to shearing time, that's, uh, that's a very joyous time because that for which the sheep have been raised is, is being harvested and is going to be sold and, and money is going to come into the household. And, and so uh, parties are usually thrown and the, sh the sheep owner is usually a little bit more generous than he is the rest 
of the year. So that's why David sent his men to go to Nabal and say, well, look, we've been protecting your sheep. You haven't lost any of them all, year, uh, all these months. So, you know, would you share a little bit of your access with us? And of course, as we know, Nabal not only refused to do so, but did so with, with a foolish rejection of David as some kind of a renegade that uh, didn't deserve the time of day. So with ungratefulness and arrogance, he turned away David's men and refused the help that David was asking for. And so David was anger, angry. You can imagine he was, he was ticked by this attitude and by the fact that he had expended effort and his men had expended effort and there was to be no reward whatsoever. It was as if they hadn't done anything at all. And so David armed, you remember, 400 of his men and he set out and he was going to deal with Nabal, wiping him out as well as all the males that belonged to him, the scripture says. That's when one of the shepherds who got wind of this whole thing probably heard the, the actual encounter between Nabal and, and, uh, and David's men. And so he ran to Abigail, knowing she was a wise woman, and spilled the whole thing to her, and she immediately took action. She got all this food together, part of which was being prepared for the, the celebration at the shearing time, and she packed it on donkeys and, and took off to try to intercept David, and, and she did intercept David, and we have that beautiful... A passage where she intercedes with David there out in the countryside, in the backside of the desert, so to speak. And David is, is greatly impressed with this woman, and he decides, okay, I'll accept your gift, and I will not harm Nabal because I believe that you have sent, that God has sent you to keep me from taking vengeance into my hands because vengeance belongs to God. And afterwards, Abigail went home, told Nabal after he got through his drunk uh, that he was when she got home. He was partying and he was totally out of his mind with uh, alcohol. And the next day she told him what about what had happened and, and scripture says that his heart turned to stone and 10 days later he died. So today that brings us to uh, chapter 25 verse 39 where we pick up with uh, David's reaction to all of this. 1 Samuel 25 39 when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David has sent us to you to take you as his wife. And she arose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your maidservant is a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Then Abigail quickly arose and rode on a donkey with her five maidens who attended her. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David had also taken Ahinoam of Jezreel, and they both became his wives. Now Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. The opposite of Nabal... David was extremely grateful. Nabal was not thankful for anything. He felt like he had earned everything that he had. It's like many men uh, and women today who say, I don't need God because I, with my own hands, have earned this wealth. And I have all met all my own needs. But David knows that he knew that he was a weak man. And he was very grateful to the Lord for keeping him from foolishly avenging himself. And what we, I think what we have here is actually a public profession of David, 
of what God has done, blessing the Lord God for his intervention, bringing about justice and preventing David from being responsible for bloodying his hand in what was really the work of the Lord to do. And as I read that, Proverbs came to mind, chapter 22. In Proverbs 22, we read these words in verse 22 and 23. Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. Because why? For the Lord will plead their, plead their case and will take the life of those who rob them. And that's, of course, exactly what happened. Nabal robbed David and his men, and God took Nabal's life. And so by waiting on the Lord, that which David had wished to do, God did, and David was not responsible for having carried out the act, and thus sullying his name as it would have been for uh, acting in just hot-headed revenge, which is the way it would have been viewed by many. This way all can say, the Lord did it. Because Nabal was healthy and, and, and just fine one day, the next day, you know, and, and he, 10 days later, the guy's dead for reasons that nobody could explain other than heart attack or whatever it was that, that came upon him. David, of course, was deeply impressed by the wisdom and discernment, the humility and beauty of this woman, Abigail. And so David does what any wise man would do and he sends her a proposal for marriage. How long did this, how long after Nabal's death did this occur? Well, the scripture doesn't tell us. We don't know how long it was before David sent this proposal to her, but I think it was certainly long enough for Nabal's estate to be all settled and taken care of for whatever legal matters had to take place. It's very probable that Nabal had an older son, maybe by Abigail, but possibly by a previous wife, because personally I think that probably Abigail was younger than Nabal by quite a bit, and that he had married her as a wealthy man, and uh, she had been given to him by her family for the purposes of obtaining some of that wealth. And so his estate was probably firmly in the hands of his son. And so as a result, Abigail was free to leave if, if she wished. And that would be particularly fitting if the son was a stepson to her and not her own son. This would give her, of course, greater freedom to leave uh, and allow him to take over the business. Abigail, I think, could be viewed as an obvious choice for David. But what about the reverse? Was David an obvious choice for Abigail? Certainly David was better than Nabal, but was David a good choice? This could be the question. Just for starters, David was already married. Twice married, actually. Now, in that day, it was legal to have multiple wives. It was even socially acceptable to have multiple wives. I mean, after all, Jacob, or Israel, who was the father of the nation, had four wives. But it was far from, from ideal for a woman to live in a multi-wife family. Secondly, uh, David was a fugitive. David had no home. David was on the run all the time. David was living with 600 men, plus I'm sure some of their families. But, but this is hardly an ideal environment to take a wife into. He couldn't even provide uh, a living for her because he had to go beg Nabal, in effect, to provide something for his men. So there was not a great deal of security that he was offering to Abigail. And then on top of that, thirdly, if David did become king, 
Did Abigail really want to be a wife of the king with all the scrutiny and responsibilities that would have, that would go along with that? Well, whatever were her considerations, it doesn't seem very long from the passage, even though the time frame isn't spelled out to us here. It seems that the message came, David would like you to marry him, and that she responds positively almost immediately, gets ready and goes off to marry David. It doesn't seem like it took her long to make the decision. It's very probable, or possible at least, that hints of such a desire on the part of David had already come to her, and so she had already thought this through, possibly. But I think the thing to note about Abigail here is her characteristic humility. She bowed before David's men, not David's men. She bows down before them and she states, she was a maid to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. Abigail had been the wife of a rich man. Abigail had lots of servants. The servants had always washed the feet in her household. So this is a powerful statement of humility on the part of this woman. And it fits perfectly with the exhortation that we read in, in Philippians chapter 2, where we read these words, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Those are some of the most difficult words in Scripture to obey because it is our nature to consider one another better than ourselves. We all have a problem with pride. Some more, some less. Some have dealt with it to some extent. The Lord has worked in many of us. And, but, but it's still there. And this woman is, is, is displaying true Christ-likeness here in her dealings as she did the very first encounter with David at, and as she did at this particular point. Such humility, I think, should characterize God's people, wherever they may be. But as you and I know, often it is sadly lacking. And unfortunately, it is sometimes lacking in the leadership of God's church. When uh, statements are made that indicate um, you know, a ride of position or <laughs> belief. What we discover here further is that Abigail is not exactly indigent because... When she goes off to join David, she's accompanied by five maidens. Not one, not two, five maidens that come along with her as attendants. The thought just came to me, and, and I never even thought that. That's a best, basically a divorce, whether you want it or not. Uh, David was divorced forcefully from Michael. But in the meantime, I think subsequently to that, he had married Ahinoam of Jezreel. Now, when he married her, Scripture doesn't say. It just says he's married to this lady. And where he met her, doesn't say either. Now, we have to think of just a minute here about this, this scene. David right now is, is down right about here. Here's Hebron. Here's Arad. He's right about in there. And he's married to Ahinoam of Jezreel. Jezreel is a, is a rather famous place in Israel. Jezreel means God sows, S-O-W-E-S. And the greatest place for sowing in all of Israel is right up here in the Jezreel Valley, or the Plain of Esdraelon, as it is called, or, or the Plain of Armageddon, if you like. It's all the same place. And there is a town on the east side, southeast corner of the valley, called Jezreel, right there. This is Mount Gilboa. 
where Saul will die, here, and right there at the northern end of the mountain is this little town of Jezreel. And she's a Hinnom of Jezreel. Now there's no record in scripture that David in his flight from Saul ever went that far north. It always seems that David fled south. He fled into the country that he knew about. He was born and raised in Judea. He had lived in Bethlehem. He had been all through the wilderness area there, so that was the best place for him to flee. There's no record that he went north. So how in the world does he meet Ahinoam of Jezreel? Well, it's possible, of course, that she was down in the south for some reason, and there he met her. Or maybe she was a relative of one of his men who said, I've got a girl for you, David, <laughs> and brought her down. Or there's a third possibility. There is, was a Jezreel in Judea. We know that because in Joshua chapter 15, it's mentioned as one of the towns there in Judea. The problem is nobody has a clue where it was. Uh, there's no modern evidence of where that town might have been. So it's possible that, that she was from that little bitty town, not the more important and better known in, in the north, and that that is where he met her. Whatever the case, David has two wives. Now, Hinoam and Abigail. And they will appear in tandem several times in the later chapters of, of this book and in the early chapters of the next book where it'll talk about David's wives and we'll mention them both, Ahinoam and Abigail, as David's wives. Uh, one of the things that all of us know that if we've studied David's life, these are not his last two wives. Uh, he will add several more in the process and have children by, by several of them. Well, let's read on in uh, the next chapter. Uh, Saul's back at it again here. Chapter 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon? I mean, th this, does this sound a little deja vu-ish to you? <laughs> yeah, it should. It's, it's almost a repeat of chapter 23. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel, to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul camped in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road, and David was staying in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. Saul then arose and came to the place where David arose and went to the place where Saul had camped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Then David answered and, answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. And behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please let me strike him with a spear into the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt. David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down in battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took 
the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head, and they went away. But no one saw, saw or knew it, nor did any awake. For they were all asleep, because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. God does act on behalf of his people. The events that we read in this chapter occurred sometime after David has married Abigail. How long? Again, Scripture doesn't say. Just reminding you again that to the Hebrews, order of time, chronology, which is so important to us with the Greek uh, frame of mind, was not important to the Hebrews. And so putting together time frames, very difficult to do in, in the Old Testament. It's the truth of what happened that's important, and the actual sequence or, or time frame is of much less significance to the Hebrew mind. Saul had not pursued David probably for the better part of a year, maybe longer. We don't know how long it had been. The shame that Saul had experienced at En Gedi, where he'd gone in the cave, remember, and David had cut off his garment, and, and, and then David had ta uh, told him that he could have taken his life, but he didn't, and Saul was so ashamed, and, and so forth. That shame has kind of waned. And, and this unreasonable hate that he has for David has come up again in his life. And so he's now acting again to destroy David. And the Ziphites, I don't know if when, when I became king, if I were David, I think I'd have put triple tax on the Ziphites or something or other. Uh, these Ziphites, same guys who de, de, uh, uh, betrayed David uh, before all of this other inf events that we read, are doing it again. Go back to the 23rd chapter of 1 Samuel and the Ziphites went all the way down again at, to, or all the way up to Gibeah to tell Saul, hey, we found him over here on the hill of Hakila, and now he's back there again. I mean, you know, it's kind of like what else is new here. Only this time they hope for better luck because last time uh, they told on David, uh, Saul almost trapped David. Remember, he was coming around the mountain and David was there and about ready to be overrun when the news came that the Philistines had evaded the land and so Saul had to take off and fight the Philistines and let David go. The people of Ziph are thinking now, this time we're gonna, he's gonna get caught and we're gonna get our reward. And that's of course what they were doing this for. They wanted a reward. So they went again to Gibeah. They walked the 30 miles from Ziph to Gibeah. Uh, Ziph is a little bit north of uh, Maon, where we just were, about five miles north. It's about five miles south of Hebron here to Maon, uh, Ziph, I mean. And so they had to go up here, like so, all the way up here to Gibeah. That's about 30 miles, and then come back to their home. Not difficult travel because it's on the, quote, main highway. <laughs> of the highlands there uh, that they made this uh, particular journey. As we noted before, the Ziphites had discovered where David was. They had sent spies. Certainly they knew that David was in the area because you don't have the events that happened that we just read in the 25th chapter of David dealing with Nabal and David dealing with Abigail. You don't have that happening without the news spreading. Remember in those days there was no television, there was no uh, internet, there was no other way, so word spread by word of mouth, but it happened all the time and it happened a great deal because the people, one of the chief, what shall I say, avocations of the people in that day was to get together and talk, something we've almost forgotten how to do uh, nowadays uh, because we sit there, you know, in front of whatever, <laughs> zoned out. 
But uh, that's all they had. And so they talked. And the women talked amongst the women. And the men talked amongst the men. And the word spread like crazy. And so the Ziphites would have known very well that David was in the wilderness of Maon and, and that he had uh, had this encounter with Nabal and that he had married Abigail. And then they sent some spies to find out exactly where David was. He's on the hill of Hakilah, where he was before. And so they go up, run up the, up the road there to tail Saul. Saul took his standing army, 3,000 men, with him. The army that he was supposed to use to defend the nation and keep order. He takes that army, marches south down the road to meet with the Ziphites and to discover where David was. David had spies also. David had spies right in Saul's household. And so uh, David knew what Saul's actions were. And so he was warned well ahead of time that uh, Saul was coming. So he moved off the hill of Hakilah. And as I mentioned to you before, when we talked about that, we do not know what hill was called by that name, but it was there in that particular region that we're talking about. And he moved off the hill because that's where he'd been and that's where, of course, uh, the Ziphites had uh, discovered him to be. And out in the wilderness somewhere. And his spies told him, now, Saul is on the hill of Hakilah, camping there. Who knows, maybe even in David's old campsite. You don't camp with 600 men plus women and children, whatever else, a thousand people at least, on the land don't leave a mark. Uh, and, and so Saul possibly camping right in David's camp. And so what does David do? He reconnoiters Saul's camp himself. He goes to check it out and to see what Saul is doing. The passage tells us that it was at night. It was nighttime when, when David came to Saul's camp. And what is interesting about that is the scripture indicates that David was able to see Saul in the middle of the camp and also to identify Abner. It's night. How does that happen? Well, there's only two ways that I know that could happen. The fires are burning very brightly in camp and, and therefore the flickering flames identified people. Or we're talking about nighttime, but the sun is probably within an hour or half an hour from coming up. So the sky is already light. Uh, the camp has not awakened yet, but David could identify Saul and uh, Abner there in the camp. Two of David's men are with him uh, when he has this little conversation. He mentions to a man by the name of Himelech the Hittite and Abishai. He talks to these two men. Now, Ahimelech the Hittite. The word Hittite uh, originates with the people who lived way off this map, way up in what is today Turkey. In the modern country of Turkey, in the second millennium before Christ, there was a large empire known as the Hittite Empire. The Hittites were not Semitic. They spoke an Indo-European language, so they were unrelated to the Jews and the Arabs and, and uh, all the other Semitic peoples of the Near East. They had been iron users and the first to introduce the use of iron to that part of the world. They had been in constant conflict with the Egyptians for hundreds of years. The Hittite Empire, though, by the time we're talking about, had waned and, and largely uh, disappeared. The Hittites, though, had scattered, and there were little pockets of them here and there. Some scholars are not too sure that the people called Hittites in, in the Old Testament uh, scripture that are actually living in Israel are, were related to the famous Hittites up north or not. But I don't see why that can't be. 
But one of the interesting things about this is whenever a Hittite is named in the Old Testament, he has a Semitic name. Ahimelech is, is the name given to this guy, which means my father is king. And of course, the Hittite that we're more familiar with, another one that David has as a mighty man, is Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah means Yahweh is light. God is light. Great name. So what this seems to indicate is that if these Hittites were of any kind of blood relationship to the former kingdom of the Hittites, they had been thoroughly, thoroughly Semitized uh, by this time and were in effect Israelites. It's sort of, to me, maybe similar to uh, the fact that we forget because of all this hassle that's going on between the Palestinians that there are a million Palestinians who live in Israel who are Israeli citizens and who are not taking part in what's going on over there in all the rioting against Israel amongst the Palestinians who are not Israeli citizens. And so maybe that's sort of the situation with these uh, individuals. One of the interesting things about Ahimelech is this is the only place he's ever mentioned, Ahimelech the Hittite. We, we know anything more about him because he's never ever mentioned again. But Abishai, now that's a different story. We know a lot more about that man. In fact, there's several other accounts in which he plays a, a significant role. He's a good fast runner, we will discover. Uh, in this passage, we're told that Abishai is the son of Zeruiah and the brother of Joab. Zeruiah was David's sister. So that makes Abishai his nephew. So David's nephew here is uh, serving in David's army along with the brother Joab and, and another brother that we'll meet later. All three of these nephews are actually serving in David's army. Now when David is talking to these two men, is he saying to these two men, will you two join me in going down to scout the camp? Or is he saying, who do you think would go with me down to scout out the camp? Because what we discover is that Abishai immediately says, I will go, but we hear no further about Ahimelech, you know. So uh, Abishai demonstrates his willingness to go with his uncle in a hazardous foray. The two of them sneak down to a camp with 3,000 soldiers in it. So they did. And they found Saul and his whole command sound asleep. They probably went past the sentinel who was, you know, snoozing away on the ground there and not doing his job. Abner, who was Saul's cousin, first cousin, and commander of his army, has failed. Abner is responsible for the safety of the king. He's the commander of the army. And yet, he posted sentinels, but it doesn't matter. What is the old phrase? The buck stops here, regardless of who goofed up down the line uh, on what their job was to be. And so, you know, Abner has to bear the brunt of allowing this, this encroachment into the camp. And as they come to the edge of the camp, David could see Saul right out there, sound asleep in the middle of the camp. Now, Abishai was probably there or at least knew the story of what happened in the cave at En Gedi where the men tried to convince David, Saul's in your hands, kill him, David. And David said, no, I'm not going to lay my hands on the Lord's anointed. So Abishai doesn't waste his breath trying to convince David to kill Saul. Instead, he says, give me permission to do it myself. He tried to persuade David 
by proclaiming, Today the Lord has delivered your enemy into your hands. This is the day. David, can't you see? Let me do it. Blood won't be on your hands. I'll do it. And he said, I'll do it with one stroke. <laughs> one stroke. Just one stroke with a spear. I don't need two strokes. I'll do it with one, which of course meant minimum noise and maximum opportunity to escape. Abishai was brave, but he wasn't going to try to then fight all 3,000 men with one spear. Uh, and, and so that was, the, that was his plan. But David resists Abishai's plea, protesting that Saul might die of divine action, Saul might die of old age, Saul might die in battle, but Saul will not die by my hand. David is a man of his word and a man of principle, and he will not violate it at this point anyway. He had proclaimed to his men at En Gedi that Saul was the anointed king over Israel and it was the Lord's prerogative to take Saul's life, not his. Instead, <laughs> David asked Abishai, and probably Abishai was about ready to have a cow in the scene. I mean, after all, the other guys thought, oh yeah, you really hurt Saul. You cut a piece of his coat off. Woo. Watch him bleed. Abishai thought, you want to sneak into the camp and steal his spear and steal his water jug, but not harm him. Probably thought uh, David was too soft, but he did. He cooperated and, and they stole the spear and they had to go into the center of the camp. Here was this spear stuck in the ground right above, you know, Saul's always scepter he had with him. He liked to throw it at people, you may remember right up by his head and his water bag right by his side there, two very essential elements for a king to have or anybody out in the wilderness. Pick them both up and tiptoe right back out of the camp. Nobody stirs. Why? Because the scripture tells us the Lord had put a deep sleep on everybody, including the sentinels. Everybody had fallen asleep at their posts and so David and Abishai were able to get away. Well, we don't have time to read how David used that uh, yet, uh, but we will do that next Sunday. But again, it was very much like the way he dealt with Saul after he cut a piece of his robe off and then confronted him with it. David will do the same here, and the reaction by Saul will be similar but not the same as before.